Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Brent S., Michael N., at Ohio D1R1, and Paul M. Returning to the program today is Mr. Ron Thiessen. Ron is president and CEO of Northern Dynasty Minerals. The company is advancing the large-scale pebble copper gold project in southwest Alaska. Northern Dynasty is a portfolio holding at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol NAK and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NDM. We're continuing with the second half of the conversation. Ron, thanks for the extended time. You're welcome and uh, always glad to accommodate. Nice to finish the story off. Well, Ron, I want to continue on from where we left off from our last segment. You know, it's funny you say America because, of course, we've got South America, Central America, North America, and people commonly mistake that America for U.S., and it's not. It's, it's a United States. It's a U.S. person. It's not American because we're all Americans, Ron, right? Yeah. But building in Africa is okay. The DRC, ah, beautiful. We can exploit these people. That's no problem. But Alaska? No, we can't do that. But they forget because they didn't live in the time frame, Ron, that the United States built upon its economic growth and built upon its legacy yeah. as a nation back before they were born. They obviously aren't students of history uh, to understand that what it took to build the foundation that was laid for them to enjoy their iPhone. And I don't mean to attack an Apple here, but that's just a beautiful way to approach it because the iPhone is so representative of what we have today from a social standpoint, from a mineral standpoint that goes into the phone, the ingredients. That's the issue is you have literally groups that will be opposed, just like, you know, whether it's Tiffany's or somebody else that still can't control their own recycle gold supply chain while they say that they won't touch minerals that are irresponsible. They won't uh, buy any gold from Pebble. Uh, I mean, we obviously don't have any exactly. gold to sell, but they also said in their SEC filings that they they could not uh, trace the origins of the gold that they bought, most of it. <laughs> you know the the you know uh, Volkswagen had a battery day here in February, and uh, I believe it was the CFO who was speaking at you know one of the the talks, and and he said that you know the developed world Europeans uh, needed to come to grips with ESG and responsible mineral and metal development, and he said because you know if we're going to do that we do not have access to that kind of minerals and metals ourselves. We need, we need to develop our own industries to be able to, to produce those. He said, right now, you know, most of the metal they get, we get through China. And he said, and when you get China controlling the mining operations and, and all of the, the raw materials going through China for, for smelting and refining, and then you're getting the product, um, there is no transparency and, and the ability to trace that is completely gone. And, and so he was telling people this and, and then also that um, the Chinese were unlikely in future to sell raw materials because the objective of controlling the commodity is so that you can be the manufacturer. So what, what do you want, folks? Oh, you want you want copper for the armature and electric motor? Well, we'll build the electric motor and we'll sell you the electric motor. But we're not going to sell you uh, refined copper cathode or refined copper wire. Ron, if you control the upstream, the downstream's all yours, right? Yep. <laughs> so there's and just China's a... been at it for at least you know two decades. Absolutely, and and there's just a just a pure misunderstanding. Is the fact is is China? If you look at their actions, go to the DRC, take a look at Ivanhoe, which is a portfolio company. Ivanhoe is a good company, and and Robert Friedman's yeah. doing a great job. But great. The bottom line of it is, is if you look at their actions in Central South America, Africa, uh, places like Serbia, look at Nevsun, uh, the Freeport JV, etc. When you look at that. 
that's exactly what they're doing. And if you look at the uranium sector, for example, China is going around and collecting deposits that have already been delineated for their nuclear power program at home. And yep. when you go to Russia, Russia has a common practice of using a policy and a strategic policy of going around and doing turnkey nuclear power. They have things like natural gas pipelines, et cetera, that supply Europe. And their focus is on secure the energy supply chain. And if you can do that, you then have control on a digital world. Yes. Just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, if you, you take Ivanhoe Kamoa, well, you know, uh, Zijin owns, what is it, 43% of the deposit, and CIC owns uh, 20% of or uh, 19% of Ivanhoe. So between those two, I mean, they fundamentally control <laughs> the destiny of the, the copper. Sure. Yeah, just just a couple different organizations. They're all Chinese based. Sure. Yeah. And not yeah, and not to say that all the Chinese are you know are bad or I mean I know the guys of Zijin well. I mean, you know, they're they're pretty astute people, but at the end of the day, they're after controlling the product and bringing it right. to China and processing it there. And my suspicion is there of course there has been interest from them on Pebble, I would suspect. Why would you not? But of course the challenges are is it's US and so there's limitations on what you can do. But I think the U.S. needs, I mean, because the U.S. has been completely out of that sphere, in fact, you know, most of the American companies are afraid to develop mines in the U.S. Most mining companies are afraid of it because it, it just, you can see what's happening to them. You know, right. you get, how long, I mean, um, let's see, uh, BHP bought uh, uh, Magna in 94, 95. And they sold resolution. Uh, let let Rio farm into resolution starting in 2002 or 2003, and they've spent 1.9 billion or two billion dollars on resolution to date, and and they're really no further than Pebble is. Yeah, that's right. And you look at the mining companies that are listed domicile in Canada or Australia, some of the UK maybe a few other jurisdictions, but when you look at it, the U.S. doesn't have any really firepower, if you will. Or... It's, got, it's got Freeport and uh, sure. and Newmont, who've been putting most of their money outside of the country. You mentioned AECOM. I know that group, having worked with them under different various activities. And, you know, again, I, I just want to point out for the audience here, Ron, that we're talking about, you know, Northern Dynasty and Pebble and the perspective that while our members may have Northern Dynasty in their portfolio, my objective here is to just discuss and point out the various issues here and have a good conversation with Ron. I'm just an objective party, and I want to just make sure that everybody's clear here that I just had to point out the stupidity that's happened over this story and the challenges that have happened in various uh, groups, et cetera, that have fought this. But AECOM, for example, very conservative group as far as when I say conservative in the context that their engineering is overbuilt, it's overdone. Yes. I, their calculations are, as a consultant contractor looking at that, I, I say, good grief, this is just overbuilt, guys. This is going to be expensive. That is the type of group that's looking at this. So you mentioned AECOM. I, I certainly understand that part of it. Let's switch gears here just for the thinking process. For investors, how should they approach the stock run? Because it's been a rough one. It's, is it a trade? Is it a hold through the upswing of this cycle, which we are in? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, again, it's different for different people. I take myself. Um, I'm here for the long haul. I have a big position. I've occasionally added to my position, rarely ever sold any stock. In fact, no, no common shares. You know, occasionally I'll sell options or warrants, but no common shares and, uh, and usually just add to it. But I do think that, uh, that, that Northern Dice can be an excellent trade. I mean, it, it, it's a, polymetallic of, you know, um, tremendous value. There's 107 million ounces of gold. There's 500 million ounces of, of silver, you know, 6 billion pounds of, of uh, moly. There's um, 25 million pounds of rhenium. There's 84 billion pounds of copper. And as the commodities cycle works its magic, I think Pebble will reflect that. I mean, we're we're, we've got this negative rod, and so I think there's a six to 12-month period that we have to go through to deal with that. 
but I, you know, even even the ENGOs, you know, one of the one of the papers they put out recently, you know, uh, they said, uh, you know, we really need to do something about Pebble to try and and sterilize it forever because it is actually a very large great deposit, and some major mining company is just going to come along and buy it and make it happen someday. I wanted to send an email to to that guy because I know who wrote it and say either you've had an epiphany or dementia's hit you. <laughs> well, with this kind of time frame, it might hit us all. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I, 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 you know what people have to come to grips with, you know, like our our largest shareholders, they ask me, so can we lose this deposit? What does it cost to have it on care and maintenance? You know, and generally because it's owned by the state of Alaska. It's a state asset. It was acquired under very unique circumstances. The US federal government can't just come along and, and take it away from anybody, you know? And, right. and like I said, as long as, as I keep the mineral claims in good standing, which costs me, you know, a million and a half to a million three quarters a year to the state government. And, and, I, and I do a bit of work and husband the thing. Well, it's all, the value is always there. And somebody is, going to make this mine is going to get into production i mean if gold goes over two thousand dollars i mean it, it's just too valuable an asset that it doesn't make it at some point in time agreed and ron you bring up a couple of points here that just leads me into what i want to ask here on a couple of different areas and there's just so much to talk about here and i appreciate the time so first off unless it's local state people and local community folks should you not have a say unless you take a visit to the site and see with your own eyes both the community conditions in the communities and also the actual project site conditions? So the, the people that are closest to Pebble get the least audience from the press in the lower 48. Nobody wants to talk to the leaders of Eliana, New Halen, and the villages on the lake. They only want to talk to BBNC out in Dillingham, and that's because BBNC is, you know, um, vehemently vocal about it and can seem to create a controversy out of it. But you know, the 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 closest people into this project should be the people that have the biggest say, and they put up their hand, they bang the desk. I mean, Lisa Rymers, I mean, she's she's one of the best spoken people on Pebble. And she lives 19 miles away from the project site, you know, and, and the people of Eliamna. It's just, there's not a lot of people there. There's, in those five villages, there's probably only 350 people in total, maybe 400 people in total. Right. That's what I wanted to point out here is because if you haven't been to the site and you haven't seen the site and you haven't gone to the community and you've seen the conditions, you've seen the prices, you've seen the lack of infrastructure, these things are what make the decisions and not some silly, this is my favorite fishing spot. It isn't a well, fishing spot, folks. That's the problem. It's not. It, yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it was somebody's fishing spot, I could see it, but it's nobody's fishing spot and it's nobody's hunting spot. It's not on the radar in that regard. Thing is, without fish in the valley, you don't have a lot of other things. You, you, you don't have, obviously really don't get bears and, and things. And, and remember that fish only come for a short period of time. But in the valley, there's no there's no water at spawning season. So you get no spawners coming into the valley. The floor of the valley is what's called shattered rock as a consequence of the, uh, the glaciers. And, right. and it's extremely challenging to walk on. Not just for me <laughs> and, and David Lowell, although David made, made me walk a mile in it. There's no trees. There's a few shrubs and bushes, but it's it's mainly low growth kind of tundra stuff on the rocks that's uncomfortable for even ungulates to walk in. So, I mean, right. there's a there is a caribou herd in the region, but it avoids this valley almost all the time and goes 20 miles to the north of us where there's nothing. I mean, we don't have anything that we're planning north of us bird patterns let's not even start to go down that rabbit hole well, we, we but, again we've done all of those things all of those studies and you know it's not a it's not a migratory spot because there's again uh, it lacks what they need water or food that's right 
but the, the birds flying over the site, Ron, they can't see that. Right. <laughs> the, the ENGOs, I mean, if you notice, if you notice the pictures that the ENGOs publish, um, we, we do have a brochure that was put out. It, uh, it's on the Pebble website and it takes each one of those pictures and tells you where it is. And the closest one is 60 miles away from Pebble. You know, look, I encourage people to ask for photos, email Northern Dynasty, ask for some real site photos, ask for pricing in the local communities. There's there is a website, uh, Pebble Limited Partnership website that has a lot of that on it. There you go. And literally getting down to splitting hairs over what a bird pattern, a migratory bird might see. And so look, if you go underground, Ron, obviously that just checks off one more box. Okay, so let's move on here for a sec. You mentioned majors. There's a number of suitors that I can think of, uh, you know, Freeport, BHP, Rio, Barrick, Newmont. There's just a lot of, of different groups that could look at this, a consortium of groups. Um, on top of that, with the cash flows that are starting to come into these companies because of commodity prices, you know, that cash balance is piling up and we've yet to see significant M&A and that's probably a ways out. But as that cash pile builds up, you're going to start to say, how do I diversify? What do I do? What about my pipeline, et cetera? You know the story, Ron. You know yeah. how it goes. So with the importance of this project, this is maybe a critic side. What would you say about a major not wanting to take part in the U.S. ACE process now? Is it about waiting for de-risking or is it something else? I think everybody was waiting because the rod seems so imminent and it's been stunning that there was a rod denial um but you're right i i think that uh you know it is a bit of shock we you know we had a lot of conversations going on last spring and and summer and and we were i mean it, it was a it was unfortunate or you know COVID came along and we originally had plans to take quite a few people into site through the end of the summer and early fall, and none of that could happen. And uh, and as as it turns out, you know, um, we didn't get the rod. That I mean, I could say everybody that was looking at you know the executive summary of our FEIS thought it was a foregone conclusion that we we're going to get the rod. You know, and, and so people have done due diligence. They've looked at this thing. I I think, you know. As you say, as treasuries start to build because there is so much money and people get entirely frustrated by um, the inability to acquire assets elsewhere. I mean, you look what's going on in Chile and Peru today. It's, you know, if they're going to tax them 75% of the, the economic value of the project, nobody's going to build a mine in Chile or Peru for five to 10 years. And so where are they going to go? Where are they going to go to get something? I mean. You know, I look at Barrick. I mean, do you do you really want to have the kind of dust ups that you have with PNG? I mean, yes, Mark's done a great job getting back in there, but he's lost 50% or 40% of the deposit because he had to cut himself a new deal. Well, you know, I think one of these big majors steps up. I do think it changes the picture. And it's just, it's got to be, you know, I think boards have to come to grips with what they're facing with. That's where, where I've found it is that the executives love the project and their biggest challenge is the board. The board's afraid that, you know, CalPERS is gonna come after them or the pension fund of New York. And they're gonna say, well, <laughs> this isn't ESG compliant and stuff like that. And and and, that, and that's that's where most of the the uh, the issue lies. Yeah. You know, and, and again, I see, you know, when you're sitting on a board, you don't get a full picture. You get a partial picture and you probably get a lot more from the marketplace than you actually get from the company. Ron, it's funny you mentioned CalPERS. They're out there deciding upon ESG while they're not sustainable themselves. Right. Well, <laughs> I didn't want well, to and, and I did, you didn't. So Donlin, a very comparable project. Why has that project been so easy given the risks on the project from an environmental standpoint. In terms of scale, it's nearly the same as Pebble, but Donlin is much closer to meaningful waterways, about 20 miles from the Cusco Krim River and about 50 miles from the Yukon River. Why has that one been so easy to pass through? Yeah, I'm not gonna point everything out, but I'm gonna tell you what the biggest difference is. 
is Donlin is on native corp land. We're on state land. And so the anti-development crowd was able to solicit the regional native corp to be anti-pebble. And that makes it look like the natives don't want it. Whereas Donlin's on native land. And so the deal is completely different. State still gets their taxes and, and the like, but now the native corp um, is, is a partner. It's like Red Dog, where um, Red Dog um, is owned by Nanacorp. The deposit is owned by Nanacorp and Kamenko, now tech, um, earned into that originally a 75-25 JV and, and Nana gets a royalty. I can't remember, it's two and a half or three percent royalty on, on, on Red Dog. And the joint venture interest for Nana, it, it grows every five years. First of all, the capital that, that Kaminko and Tech put in to begin with, it had to be recovered before the 25% started paying. But once the capital was recovered, Nana's made a lot of money off their 25% JV interest. They're currently, I believe, at um, at a 35% interest, but they have the they they will get to a 50-50 over time. Ron, are you suggesting that the U.S. Army Corps has a different view because your project's on state lands and there's been lobbyist efforts by other groups into the native corps in the area versus Donlin, which is, has not had those types of impacts? Why would that affect their decision-making, which is supposed to be based on engineering and science? Well, um, so that's a very complicated question. It, it was in the first instance, and I'll go back to August the 24th, there was a news release issued by the Department of Army, not by the Army Corps of Engineers, but by their bosses, the Department of Army, that said we'd been turned down. Now, we were led to believe that that was in error, but not by the Department of Army, but by some people in the US Army Corps of Engineers. And I'm not so sure that that wasn't a decision made by the Department of Army at that time for reasons other than science and fact, because we were in the middle of an election. Um, we, we were, on that day, we got delivered the statutory uh, mitigation letter by the Army Corps of Engineers and and we were told that um, in effect had we stuck with the old mitigation plan yes we would be turned down but now we have an opportunity to come up with a new mitigation plan pursuant to the letter that we've given you that sets out the details i i mean we we can't even technically submit a cogent mitigation plan until we get that letter but it was interesting on that day the Department of the Army that ne that's never issued a letter like this before, issued a letter apologetic to the mining industry, but pebbles being denied. And coincidentally with that um, news release, the, the two state senators put out a news release at exactly the same time, so they knew it was coming congratulated the Army for making a decision to deny Pebble. And yet we went ahead, we were encouraged by the Army Corps of Engineers to continue working, spend another million and a half, two million dollars to complete a mitigation plan that they said would be acceptable. And yet when we submitted that, they took a couple of days and turned us down. So we're trying to get to the background in all of this. You know, that's and, frustrating. And it, very frustrating. The timing of the event is not a coincidence. And of course, it, it looks like a bunch of gut shot wild pigs running away while this election started up here. Um, and obviously we know the outcome now and we, we can look back and see what happened and why these moves were made. And it was a matter of personal interest in my opinion, which is odd because that's it happens to be in a professional capacity in an agency. But nonetheless, the new administration very many ties with the prior administration that made things slow and difficult to advance the project. How do you guys see the new administration and is there sufficient common ground to get the permitting wrapped up 
sometime within this uh, administration's first four years? Well, you know, again, we're we're in an administrative appeal. I, I don't think um, the executive branch of the federal government is going to do anything while we're either, especially during this administrative appeal process, they're going to want that to play out. And why would they want to, you know, get their hands dirty on either side of the fence when they can say, listen, it's under administrative appeal and, and uh, we'll see what, how that comes out, how that eventuates. I mean, there is a huge move on their part on the green initiative and, and moving ahead with all of this. Um, they've made some interesting comments like they're going to rely on their neighbors for a lot of critical metals that they hope to fulfill their needs from. But the reality is that, that neither Mexico or Canada produces a tremendous amount of, you know, available copper for them. There, there's no way that there's enough of these other metals and minerals. We have no rare earth mines in Canada. We have no lithium mines uh, in Canada. That's not to say we can't have them. Uh, we used to have cobalt mines. We don't have any cobalt mines now. We have some nickel mines in Canada, but to get rare earths going, it's the challenge with rare earths, especially in North America where they're not in carbonates, they, they tend to occur coincidentally with radioactive material called thorium. You cannot dispose of waste radioactive material into the environment. So technically, um, to have a rare earth processing operation, either in the States or Canada, I believe you have to have the Atomic Energy Commission of either company, country, um, take those wastes and dispose of them because you couldn't dispose of them into the environment. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why the one rare earth mine in the United States, Mount Pass, uh, produces a concentrate that keeps the radioactive material in it, and that concentrate goes to China for processing. It's so about China, the highest bidder. Well, and they didn't have to bid that much seeing as how they drove the price of rare earths down and bankrupted the company. And then they came in the liquidation process and effectively, I mean, they bought 20% plus took a contract for uh, offtake. So yeah. they, they get, they get the only rare earths that are produced in America end up in China. Sounds like a good strategy to me, Ron. Somebody so was thinking, Certainly critical thinking here, which is what appears to be lacking in domestic. Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that, you know, there are people in this administration and, and I've had some conversations with people who are well connected in, in, in the administration about, you know, the, the logic of having your own sustainable resources. I mean, first of all, environmentally, it's, it's going to be much more rigorous in North America than it is anywhere else. It's, you, you've got labor laws you're gonna deal with. You know, there's not gonna be any child labor um, and, and you can impose a lot more rigor on all of it. You're not gonna have upstream tailings deposition sites. We've got water treatment facilities built into Pebble to treat water. I mean, the reason that the tailing storage facilities fail is because people store water in them. They're not meant to store water. They're meant to store tailings, which is sand. And if you keep water out of them, they, they never fail. I mean, Mount Pauly failed because way too much water. They had an overtopping event two months, three months before the failure. San Marco, same thing, way too much water in there. Bramandino, I mean, hell, Bramandino, they had water coming out of the face of the dam. So we've got a special design, which ACOM and the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, commented on the nature of that structure that weeps you know it the water comes out of it we collect that in seepage storage ponds and we've got a couple hundred million dollars in water treatment plants so that we don't have to ask the state of alaska can we discharge this water just as it is it's probably good enough but we we won't ask them the question we'll just treat the water probably ready to drink we can know. make it we can certainly make it that way I can't remember, but the two that we've got are capable of processing tremendous amounts per minute. When you say seepage, it's drainage. It's, it's been structurally designed to drain the water. And it, so... It comes out the toe. It, 
It's exactly right. the way Gibraltar is. I mean, the way we, we used to build tailings structures were, were that they were meant to leak. They were meant to seep because people knew that if you allowed water to accumulate in them, you could have a liquefaction event. And this is the idea is not to have water in that in, in that tailing sand is is yes, you use liquid water tailings to transport it along a pipeline and then and then discharge it into the tailings, but then you have that water seep down through it, run along the bedrock, come out the toe, and oh by the way, that tends to polish the water and take a lot of the stuff out of it. But now yeah. you've got water at the toe that you can use either recycle it through the plant or it's clean enough that you discharge you know and, and we discharge that water at gibraltar into the fraser river it's cleaner than the fraser river water right we we have a we have a discharge part in, into the fraser and we have to measure the water quality 100 meters above the discharge pipe and 100 meters below and and the better water quality because it's much clearer there's so much sediment in in the fraser river is that is the one below the discharge pipe right and, and so we've done the same thing only then we've we've additionally we've armored reinforced the embankment and its angle its slope typically the slopes are 40 to 44 degrees ours is 36 37 degrees so it's it's much flatter it's armored and then we've got the water treatment plants this is extremely conservative compared to a lot of failing infrastructure that's in the lower 48. There's lots of stuff that will uh, be a challenge for the Army Corps, which, by the way, they happen to be the agency that oversees a lot of this infrastructure in the lower 48, along with FERC. It's just silly to focus on these types of things because it is extremely, extremely safe and will be well built. And you're taking into basic logic in terms of thought processes for earthquakes and these types of things. You know, it's almost like the point now where we got to start designing this thing for intentional acts, right? It's just ridiculous. Yeah, um, we designed for for human error, and we did a tremendous amount of work on right. on ground movement. I mean, you know, with U.S. Geological Survey, we have all that data. We we know where the subduction zone is. We've we've actually experienced you know three reasonably sized earthquakes in the last you know six eight years up there, and and there's hardly been any you know movement in in the lake communities and next to nothing at uh, at uh, Gibraltar you know there was an earthquake in Alaska about two three years ago and I think it was uh, a six odd and there's been a few fives that have been in Cook Inlet that are you know probably only about 80 miles away from the pebble site but what we find is that is that um, the ground acceleration is just completely diminished once it hits the coast um, there is a fault in under Lake Clark that hasn't moved, hasn't budged since the last ice age. So we believe it's dormant. So does the U.S. Geological Survey. But we said that fault, looking at it as a slip strike fault, at maximum, what it would do at maximum, and take 25% more and assume it runs directly underneath the pebble tailings storage facility, and that's what we designed it for. And yet that fault does not run under the tailing storage facility, but that's how it was designed. Ron, there's more risk in safety incidents. Safety incidents, I'm talking like personnel, and risk with economics. And that is a wild statement in itself because of what we have with copper prices and so forth going forward. So that is the level of consideration here, almost to the point of active God types here the top shelf that's the top shelf there's nowhere else to go yeah try to take those acts of god into account with respect to both rainfall and uh moisture accumulation and and seismic events rainfall is nothing up there you know come on down to central south america ron we'll talk about rainfall well, i've been to i've been to cobra de panama it's like six meters and <laughs> a meter. exactly exactly just to put it in perspective for folks so the state of Alaska has, in my mind, nearly stated that the feds need to stay out of state economic decisions. Yeah. This project is on state lands and the land there is set aside for mineral development specifically, attracting, who would have thought, natural resource companies by default and as advertised. 
and thinking that this arrangement was a way to a responsible company for submitting a plan that was geared towards a yes answer given the circumstances of how this was set up originally. What's your thoughts on state of Alaska and their ability to say, feds, you're out of line here. We're moving ahead without you. Legally, I'm not sure that they, they can actually do that, but I think they can apply a tremendous amount of pressure. The state is on record that if the Fed does something um, tantamount to a taking, which would be um, you know, inappropriately stopping the development of this project, where you know all of the engineering records, all the, the uh, environmental records, all of that documentation demonstrates that it can be safely, safely built and operated, and the Fed you know, ignores all of that and says no, then the state has a very strong case for a taking. The state is on record publicly twice now that their idea of compensation is a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars not as not as big a number as it used to be. <laughs> Certainly not in the last two years. No kidding. <laughs> but you know, that, that gives you some idea of you know where the state is. I mean, the governor came out and he said, you know, not to diminish the fishery. But he said the state spends more money managing the, the commercial fishery than it takes in because 85% of the, the, the fishing permits in Bristol Bay are owned by non-Alaskans and 98 or 99% of the employees are not Alaskans. You see, there, it was some ridiculous number like there's only there was only 12 people from Western Alaska that worked in the processing plants last year. I mean, he was... He was truly outraged over, and, and the fact that the feds had made the decision before Alaska was allowed to submit their findings. You know, how, how, does the, how does the federal government have a public interest review without knowing what Alaska's position is? Good point. Back to the point you made about the compensation and the taking. There was a, a recent uh, circumstance where I was involved with a... Uh, a differing site condition by the federal acquisition regulation on a construction contract where uh, basically there was differing site conditions that the government was not aware of, nor was the uh, the contractor. And it just so happened to be that when I was speaking with the government, I said, well, you know, look, the FAR has provisions for these types of events where the government's liable to compensate the contractor for these differing site conditions. Why is that in there? Well, whoever thought of that when they designed that FAR back uh, many, many decades ago was that the government's the one who prints the money and yeah. that uh, at the end of the day, the contractor should be made whole when there's these types of events that the government did not explore and investigate to provide in their contract and their design drawings. So a case in point here, a little bit different, but definitely uh, relevant. The state has some unique considerations. Number one is the state acquired this property under a land exchange agreement that allowed the U.S. federal government to create Lake Clark National Park. So this, the, the, the Fed got consideration. They have a park. The state took this pebble area, specifically in that document, it says it is accepting this in exchange because of its geological prospectivity, which it will be allowed to develop without reservation. And if it's not allowed to, to, to do that, then the state has not received any consideration under that contract. See, that's a good point. My suspicion is, is that National Park is a very visually appealing and attractive beautiful location, <laughs> while Pebble <laughs> is a very a beautiful and attractive location uh, that you can't see. <laughs> do, do you know the, um, you've seen that, uh, uh, documentary on that Alaskan woodsman who builds his own log cabin and does all of this, you know, from yeah. the 19, I don't know, 30s or 40s or something like that. Have you seen that? Yep. It's like a 10-part series. It's, I think I've caught some of it, yes. Well, that's the that's the National Park. It's Lake Clark National Park. I think that's interesting to bring that up. And the state of Alaska has some pretty good leverage on that front there that over all these years of compensation was never given here because you've got a bunch of unusable ground. I mean, what are you going to do up there? Have a barbecue? I, I don't know what you're going to do. Well, you, 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 you can't actually get into the Pebble site other than by helicopter. You've got to fly to Iliama first because I don't think uh, helicopter 
might not make it from Anchorage to, uh, <laughs> you know, fuel-wise. I would just encourage people to look at the site. There's just yeah. not a lot happening there from a wildlife perspective whatsoever, or any other perspective really, other than what we know that's underground here. So, Ron, kind of wrapping up here, just a few other things, and I appreciate you taking the time here. We've talked a lot. You know, you guys have various transportation corridors under the proposal. Yeah. Do you see any issues with regards to establishing right-of-way with the native corps, such as APC and others, as far as your ability to be able to construct, you know, things like roads, which they're going to use anyway, surface-type activities to be able to get your guys' product to port? I mean, there's there's no guarantees in any of this. I mean, we, we do have we the original concept of, you know, the uh, road route to the north shore of Lake Iliamna uh, ferry and then uh, road route on the other side that that we do have, you know, options in place to do that. The northern corridor route, we, we never did lock that in. Um, and there is competition on the northern corridor with with conservation groups. In fact, there's just been, I don't know if you saw, but there was an article in the wall in the Washington Post today, I believe it was Washington Post, about, you know, um, Pedro Bay Corp having signed up with a conservation organization to, to put a conservation easement on their land in return for, you know, I don't know what the number is, 15, 20 million dollars. Entirely their choice. Where that ends up for us, you know, I don't really have a comment. There's there's always lots of alternatives, I believe, on infrastructure. There are state land routes that where we could do it entirely on state land, but we decided that we wanted to incorporate native village corp land to the extent that we could, because that generates revenue for the village corp. Simple so, enough. So yeah. The point being here is that you have these options and because the economics are obviously very well in your favor here, that there are other options and that, that there's not one set option here. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, you know, it sounds cheap to me to, to buy out a uh, conservation easement for that kind of money at this point. is That's like throwing a few pennies out. But anyway, you've already spoken to resilience and tolerance here for this project on your guys' management team. What's your thoughts on maybe your personal time frame here as far as maybe a sale of the company to a major, some kind of partnership. Um, obviously, this project is amenable to all the majors out there. But at the same time, you and, and of course myself, even we have a time frame out there for everything that we do in our business activities. But I suspect your time frame is five to seven years. What's your thoughts? I would say that's, that's probably the case. You know, um, we've always tried to make it, um, I think, I like to say easy for majors to come in. We've never we've never said you know write us a check for a hundred million dollars and and um, we'll put that in our pocket and you fund the rest. We've always said we want to see all the money go on the ground. We want to see this asset developed. We what we want is we want you to earn a fifty percent interest until you you make that decision. You get you can get up to fifty percent by earning in, and if you want to go higher than that, it's not that we're not amenable to it, but that's another conversation. And we don't want to give you that that control up front because if you give if, you, if we give you that more than 50 percent up front there's without question there's complications in your life that we don't have and that's what exactly happened with rio and first quantum and anglo they all would have put it on care and maintenance and gone away for a long time whereas we've been able to at least carry all of the exploration engineering and environmental work forward to a point where you know it it should be able to get a permit, um, and and we're open. I mean, I you know I, if we'd had the rod, I think we would have a deal today. And you know, copper moving to five bucks, gold going over two thousand dollars. I think people are going to want they're going to want a, a method of having some kind of opportunity and interest in the project. I think something could happen in. You know, the near term, the near term being, you know, a year or two. Nobody's going to want to wait for $7 copper and $2,500 gold prices. A lot more money. Yeah. It's, I, I like to tell people, it's not my first rodeo, but I'm not looking to keep control of the project. I'm, I'm not looking to be the guy that runs the development, the building of this project. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to stay as part of the project as well. I think this is a huge project and, and you know, 
um, my kids can benefit, my grandkids can benefit off of it. No, not, not a problem for me. Uh, that said, I tell people, I can deliver 50% to you. You want more than 50%, you have to talk to my shareholders. I'm a single asset company. I cannot sign a deal that gives you 51% of the asset without going to the shareholders. And if that's what you want, then put something on the table. But uh, the 50-50, and everybody's like that. At the end of the day, they sit down and, you know, oh, we don't want to do, we don't want to do the angle deal. And then, you know, first call they, well, we can do this deal just with an option agreement. We can structure it. All your money's going into the ground. None's going in my pocket. And all of a sudden, you know, Philip really liked that part of, that's how it was structured. And I've had conversations with other people. And I would say, it's never really been the deal that's the problem. It's been the board. There's a reason that uh, Mark wanted Freeport so much, and that's because of the size of the gold deposit at Grasberg. Yeah, well, Indonesia, as you know, Freeport's has some challenges. I know we've spoke about that. And if you're looking for that diversification, you know, people, back to the point you made earlier, is these nations, Canada, U.S., et cetera, have run away mining companies to look towards other jurisdictions, developing nations. Well, that's starting to turn around the other way. Where would you would you rather face the Army Corps of Engineers? I mean, you know, you get one of these big companies. I think the U.S. Fed, the White House, and uh, the Governor's Mansion, you know, all all want a Freeport or Richard Ackerson to take over this project. It, it makes it easier for them rather than having to support a junior mining company. And I think right. I just don't think they it'd be nearly as bad as people think it would be for them. Ron, it's a perfect fit. I've sent Ackerson letters directly about this. We know that the Grassberg is running out, and the Indonesian government's not the most amenable folks as they used to be. Obviously, they've become more sophisticated, more developed. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah. So this ticks a lot of boxes for them. I just I, I mean I use Richard. Because I think, you know, it's an American flag and he's a well-respected guy. And, you know, so I think, yes. I think, I think any one of the majors, I mean, that was one of the things about Cynthia Carroll at Anglo is she saw the benefit in Anglo having a mine in the United States. And, sure. and that's, that was one, a big driving force. When Anglo left, Mark Kudafani, he didn't want to leave, but he really had no choice. Remember, he was thinking of terminating 50% of the workforce of 175,000 people. You know, there was, there was in 2013, they weren't sure that they were going to make it financially. And he told me, he said, you know, you're the only project that I can't put on care and maintenance uh, of my own accord, but I have to put you on care and maintenance. And I, and we said, listen, we can't live that way. We can make it very cheap for you to stay in. But it, it ended up being a debate between Mark and their Anglo engineering division out of South Africa. It couldn't get resolved and so he had to depart. It was all about the economics of Anglo as opposed to, you know, what Pebble was about. I mean, he, he said at the onset of the meeting, he says, probably the greatest discovery I've seen in my lifetime in mining. Interesting stuff here in First Quantum, you know, certainly they've had their financial challenges and, and had their financial challenges when they put forth this option, which which obviously demonstrated to the market what, what type of numbers that were being considered, but obviously useful to you guys from the cash that come in from that as far as the premium goes. I mean, I, I love them. I, I think, you know, every one of these big mining companies goes through, uh, I don't know if you've read Norm Keeble's book on don't sit on your oars, and if you haven't, then I'm going to send it to you. Um, but you know, Norm says every all these mining all mining companies go through that 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 time when they're the best builders in the world. They've got the best people, and and they and they build great mines, and then you know they get to a point and they start to lose that entrepreneurial and driven, and the team dissipates. Well, I think First Quantum, under Philip and his brother Matt and Tristan, that's exactly where they were. And, you know, I'm, I, I still think they're there. I think they're the best mind builders in the world today. And that's what I really liked about them. I mean, they weren't the most high profile. They didn't tick all the boxes with the governor of Alaska, didn't know who they were, you know, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, they were great mind builders. When I went down and looked at Cobra to Panama, Bob and I and, and Steve, I mean, it was really spectacular what they had done with what they were given at the time. I remember they bought... They bought into the project 
when all the engineering had pretty much been completed and, and a bunch of equipment had been uh, spec'd and paid for, even some stuff had been delivered to site. It's probably not exactly what Philip would have, would have built had he been able to do all of that on his own. Yep, and they managed to do it in Panama, which isn't, you know, it's not the easiest jurisdiction. Uh, well, there's a lot. Of, there was a lot of similarities between uh, Hebel and Cobra to Panama. You know, remote site, uh, no infrastructure, large deposit, and we had better grade. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, yeah, send me that book. I'll send you back a package of coffee. Well, Ron, let's wrap it up here. So potential investors who are on the sidelines listening, market cap of the company stands about 285 million US dollars. What would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they consider Northern Dynasty in this market? It, it is so incredibly cheap. I mean, it, it you know, if we had the rod, we'd be multiple dollars. And we don't, but we've got we've got the underpinnings to the rod. We have an FEIS which is, you know, and I'd encourage people to go read the executive summary and marvel at the positivity of that, you know, and, and you're just, you're buying an option, really, at 57 cents, whatever it was, I don't know, 50, um, really, you're buying an option on something that's, that's worth, in theory, billions of dollars, and it doesn't have to change much to be multiples, and there are things that are going to be happening I think later this year, especially on the administrative appeal front. And when you look at the commodity markets, it's it's extremely rosy. And the higher that price goes, I believe the more chance there is that somebody just, you know, says it's time. You know, we know this asset, we need to take it. So that's my view. And what is the best way for investors to reach out to the company? Call us at IR, you know. 684-6365, 604-684-6365, or, or send us emails. I mean, you know, we IR takes in emails and, and circulates it to the executives. They, you know, the, kind of once a week we get a, I, I even get a list of these are all the questions and I'll take them and I'll answer a half a dozen or a dozen of them myself. Ron, easy enough. All that right. sounds good. And certainly reach out to Mike. He can process and, and take care of some things. Well, Mr. Thiessen, I'll call you Ron. It's always good to catch up, stay yeah, the course absolutely. in Northern Dynasty. And look, I really look forward to seeing you drive this thing ahead. And I think the cycle's right. I think that things are uh, ripe to see this move forward and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Okay. You're welcome. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Andrew.